Are you one of those people who thrives off a good checklist? That feeling of ticking the box or crossing out the line item of something you accomplished? Does that sense of satisfaction only last for a fleeting moment though, before you've added even more things back to that checklist? The reality is we're never done with our checklist and we need to come to terms that sometimes that's okay. Today, we have Madeline Dorr joining us, the author of I Didn't Do The Thing Today, Letting Go Of Productivity Guilt. She talks with us about giving ourselves permission to let go and focus on the things that really matter versus just going through the motions. We'll talk about the difference between happiness and satisfaction, burnout and how to spot it, and how we each need to create our own user manual so we can live a more energized and rewarding life that's tailored just for us. After this quick break, join Aaron, Bob, and me, Meredith Black, to chat with Madeline on Reconsidering. Hey, Aaron Walter here. Bob, Meredith, and I are so excited by the reception that Reconsidering has received from listeners. Turns out people are really enjoying the show. We're working really hard to bring you conversations from best-selling authors and deep thinkers who have insights that can help you find satisfaction in your work and your life. If you found the show meaningful and useful, we have a small ask. We hope that you can help us grow the community by just leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Yes, they now have podcast reviews too. Wherever you listen, just search for Reconsidering in the podcast directory and leave us a quick review. This will help others find the show. It's also really helpful for Bob and Meredith and me to get your feedback as it'll help us refine the show. Our sincere, deepest thanks in advance for your support. Now, let's get back to the show. I'm Madeline Dorr. I'm a writer and author and asker of questions from difficult to very simple. Okay, we ready to play? Yeah, let's do it. Early bird or night owl? I oscillate. Okay, mansion or apartment? Apartment. Netflix or YouTube? Netflix. Manual or automatic? I don't have a car to drive. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, to-do list or calendar? Mm, to-do list, written by hand. Mm. Now or later? I'm going to be honest and say later. There we go. Night on the town or quiet night at home? Oh, it depends on the mood. Routine or pattern? Pattern. Montaigne or Marcus Aurelius? Mm, oh, maybe Marcus for the bite-sized pieces. Truth or dare? Am I asking or am I answering? Mm, that's a good response. We're just going <laughs> to leave it at that. Okay. And then finally, time or money? Time. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. They were lovely. I wasn't so scary. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, Madeline. I have to say, I was absolutely obsessed with your book. I don't know if you can see this, but what I'm showing is all the post-it note marks that I've written on your oh. book. I've highlighted and written everything down, and I'm absolutely obsessed with this oh, book. Oh, I so love I'm, that. It matches the cover. I know. That was kind <laughs> of intentional. I'm a little type A. So you started this book because you were doing a research project called Extraordinary Routines. I'd love to hear a little bit more about Extraordinary Routines and how this book kind of came about. 
Yeah, well, Extraordinary Routines is a labour of love that I started uh, almost a decade ago, actually, in a time of my life where I was very much feeling like I was flailing about. I couldn't find the work that I wanted in journalism and I just felt like I was falling behind and falling short of those around me. And so I thought that if I could have these conversations with people that I admired and ask them how they go about the day, how they do what they do, then maybe it would give me a clue or a secret to sort of, you know, that I could copy and paste onto my own life. And so I started out asking friends and then friends of friends and then people that I had long sort of put on a pedestal. And very soon, instead of getting an answer or this secret (laughs) uncovering, I found that these people also felt like they were falling short or never feeling like they were doing quite enough. And so the question began to change and I started to look at why that is. Why is it that we're chasing this idea of, you know, perfecting our routines or maximizing our productivity, but actually it's like a hamster wheel because we never arrive, even the most successful, inspiring, still don't feel like they've reached this point. So I started to delve into, I guess, yeah, our shared stumbles and then the project evolved from there. You'd mentioned in the book, there's a quote you said, we are placed in a state of perpetual lurching, a checked off to-do list that we fill up again and again. Rather than trying to constantly catch up, we must define our own version of enough. So how do we stop this cycle? That's the big question is how do we hop off that hamster wheel? And it's quite complex because I think that we each have very different looking days. And I think that a lot of the productivity advice out there can be quite homogenous and it can be quite narrowing and it can have sort of these really linear, consistent expectations of people when we're not linear and our days have surprises in them and they have natural, inevitable distractions and interruptions. So I think that we have to start by, I think, acknowledging that we all have variances and our days vary. And then from there, I think we really need to start with curiosity as well. And so it's a big question in terms of how how do we untangle, but I think the idea of getting curious, noticing that we are in a spiral, naming it and stepping out of it allows us to look at these circumstances, look at these variances, and then look at the stories that we might be telling or have been told about things like productivity, about things like routine or success or even perfection. And I think once we have those stories, we can then really start to reframe them and, you know, give ourselves permission to find what actually works for us and rethink a day well spent instead of maybe feeling like we don't live up to something that's being imposed on us. Madeline, why do you think so many of us, we gather our sense of self-worth from our productivity? Well, I think it's very much something that's celebrated, isn't it? It's something that, you know, what we do is how we introduce ourselves to one another. It's all over social media, what people accomplish. You know, we see this highlight reel and we can be so quick to compare. It's also entangled in society, you know, in terms of our output being a measure of worth and it's tied to, you know, how much money we might make or how our bosses might value us. Productivity is really put on this pedestal and it's become this big tangle that's again, really complex in terms of this comparison. And we can, 
say, you know, it's capitalism as well, where we've been sort of expected to be almost machine-like in how we approach our work. It's a whole bundle of things <laughs> to answer simply. Yeah, it's interesting when you th- bring it up the capitalist thing, because I had the same idea. That, like capitalism and the factory mentality wants us to have the same routine so that we're predictable day in and day out. And I wonder how much this concept of routines and patterns, I mean, for me personally, I find them comforting just because it helps me structure my day. But I wonder how much the incredible emphasis on routine and patterns and doing the same thing day in and day out. It's just us responding to this capitalist desire for us to be machines operating in the economy in a really predictable way. The thing is that routines, productivity, all of this is, is not to say that these things are terrible. You know, they're actually incredibly helpful. And so it's not as if we should do away with productivity entirely. But I think it's when those systems or those routines or those expectations aren't inclusive to all sorts of individuals or they don't work for you, that it becomes a problem. For me, it was really helpful to see that I was living in this world that expected me to be linear when actually everything's cyclical. The seasons, the days, our bodies as human beings, we're not designed to be on this constant lurching, as we sort of spoke about just a a moment ago, you know, things have patterns. There's something in the book, there's just a phrase that kind of stuck with me, embrace the wobble, which I think you kind of touched on in your previous answer. Could you just like unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, I think that it's interesting that often achieving balance seems to be the remedy for so many of these things. You know, if, if someone's burnt out or if someone's sort of working too hard or overindulging, often people will say that you've just got to find a balance and then you'll, it's almost as if then that will fix everything. You know, you'll suddenly find yourself in equilibrium and you'll have your health in check and your family and your relationships will all be happy and work won't be stressful. But it's funny because balance really suggests in a way, stagnancy and stillness. And of course, we need those moments of stillness, but life again, it's sort of, it's constantly in flux and it's constantly this wobbling really. And it's not balance maybe to strive for, but to be okay with the balancing act of it all, because we won't ever reach balance. And I think that like all of these things, if routine or if perfection or if a constant upward trajectory, if they're out of reach, it's almost as if by striving for them, we're postponing our lives and waiting until we have balance when actually our life is right now. And so the wobble is really embracing that rather than trying to rid our lives of that, because then you can shift between different priorities and then you can see that things are cyclical. And, you know, maybe this week or this month, things really are busy at work, but maybe that means that there will be a time when things will shift and you'll have more downtime. And instead of spoiling that by feeling guilty that you're not working, you can start to see that balance is kind of something that's sort of spread out a little bit more than this even perfect thing because it's it's really quite impossible to figure out what balance would even really look like. So going with the wobble, I think, is what we end up doing anyway, but we judge ourselves for it. So what if we actually made it something that was, you know, okay and actually part of it? Yeah, that's interesting that you say that because then you also talk about the difference between happiness and satisfaction, which I kind of think is kind of like the subway of what happens with the wobble, right? And you you mentioned Daniel Kahneman's view on happiness and satisfaction. I'm wondering if you could explain to our listeners what the difference is. 
Well, I think the difference there is really that happiness is a state. And again, one that wobbles, we could say. It's a transient state that we don't arrive at. We just have moments, you know, bits of happiness. Whereas satisfaction, my understanding was that it's built over a period of time and it's a commitment to something. And it's something that acknowledges that the tensions or the challenges or even the problems with something actually helps build the satisfaction in doing. And so it's something that over the long view allows us to anchor in satisfaction and rather than having sort of the fleetingness of happiness pass us by. This whole line of thought makes me think about sailing. Not too long ago, I got to sail with a buddy from the San Francisco Bay Area down to Santa Barbara. And you know, you kind of expect on a sailing trip at some point it's going to be okay and you're just going to settle in, but it never really happens. You know, you're kind of constantly tuning something, the weather's changing, the clouds are changing, the waves are changing. Like there is no moment where everything is humming along. And if there is just a brief moment like that, you just soak it in and you bask in it as like, wow, this is amazing sailing. And then it's gone like in five minutes. As you're describing the wobble and how you're trying to balance all this stuff, but it's kind of constantly moving you know, and you're having to make all these little tweaks all the time. And when you're out sailing or frankly gardening, or if you've ever been in a small private plane, it's the same thing. Like it's just this constant adjustment of things. Mm, So well put. Yeah. Madeline, I really liked how you, in the book, you were really focused on living a creative life. Because I think that that is a key ingredient, at least from my personal perspective, to finding that satisfaction Uh, Creative life is one of curiosity, of discovery, of taking risks. How do you try to cultivate a creative life personally? Well, I've really taken a broad approach to creativity because for a long time I was self-conscious in a way that I was interviewing all these creative people, painters and poets and novelists, musicians, and interviewing them didn't make me more creative. Like I didn't suddenly become an artist and I thought, oh, why isn't this working? Why aren't I suddenly transformed? And then it sort of dawned on me that I'm not sort of interviewing them to become an artist. I'm interviewing people about what creativity looks like in order to sort of see how actually it can be applied to all of us. And it doesn't matter if you're a creative professional or an artist, we have an innate sense of creativity just from being human. And what that means is that we don't have to be an artist, but we can be an artist with our lives, with our days, with our careers, even with our conversations. We can be creative. And all that means is, as you said, you know, bringing curiosity and discovery to things and being courageous enough to maybe find your own way. You know, being creative really is about being willing to experiment with things. And so I've really hoped to do that in my own life by constantly coming up with ways to think of doing things differently. And often, you know, that's even something like at the moment being in a new city, I'm really trying to challenge myself to make sure I have a conversation with someone I don't know each day. And obviously that doesn't happen every single day, but I try to put myself in the world. You know, I'm at a co-working space. So that does sort of increase the opportunities for spontaneous connections. Just today, a woman asked for directions and, you know, just pausing to be able to bring up my map, even though I don't know the city at all either, and help, and then actually ended up walking her to the destination to have that conversation. And that was a beautiful moment. So I just think that it's these small things that we can do to create poetry in our lives. You know, we don't actually have to write a poem. 
Yeah, I think that's so important to call out. I mean, you know, Bob, Aaron, and I kind of have the luxury of working in a creative environment day to day. However, a lot of people are like, oh, well, I'm not creative or, oh, I can't do that. But that's not true. It's just how you look at what creativity means, right? And how it's defined. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, through art or through any sort of design means, but it's how you get through the day and how you can inspire yourself to kind of change outside the norm. Mm, yes, exactly. Yeah, it's lovely how you're approaching creativity. You've kind of redefined it as this constant questioning of could something be different here? Could something be better? Is there a different way to do this? There actually is a lot of research about when you talk to strangers, how much more satisfied you are in your life. I, I can't remember the exact study, but there was something where they took a control group and a second group and the second group, they had them interact with somebody on the subway every day. And then they interview these two different groups for their satisfaction. And the, and the group that reaches out and talks to strangers ends up being much happier, although they're all kind of have this anxiety about that first moment of what that first interaction is going to be. But once you get past that awkwardness, which is very short lived, then it's really transformative. And it really does make a huge difference in people's overall satisfaction and well-being. Yeah, I agree. As someone who's quite shy and introverted, actually, I've learned that that first bit, it doesn't matter. You can say the most innocuous thing. And if someone is open to talking to you, they will talk to you. And if they're not, then that's actually not personal. And so these little experiments that we have in our days, they're creative lessons. You know, those little small things teach us that things like rejection aren't personal and that we should just try and have a go and try to connect. So yeah, I think that they can have a ripple effect. Yeah, you got to do it in moderation too, right? Like you got to start out small. And I think that's really important. And I think people who are productive and maybe overly productive forget that too. It's like it's okay to take a step back and just try something new and try something that's going to be much smaller. And it doesn't have to be this big thing or this big project, this big, big initiative. It can just be something really tiny that could just like tweak your day just a little bit more to make it better. Exactly, Meredith. Yeah. So speaking of moderation and experiments, <laughs> I noticed on your website that you you didn't have the article data, but you quit drinking at some point in the last X number of weeks or months or years. And I don't know if you've started again or whatever, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experience with sobriety, if you will, especially in a city like London, which is uh, <laughs> a little bit of a challenging environment for that, I would think. Yeah, well, actually, it's interesting timing because I do enjoy dipping into these sober stints. And so you have caught me a month in, 28 days into a sober stint, so my entire time being in London. And I think that's actually quite purposeful because, you know, as much as I've tried to experiment with this, I am someone who can be quite all or nothing. And I've noticed that drinking especially is something that ugh, I just, I know that there's some people we don't have a stopper. You know, once I have the one, I forget that I just wanted the one. <laughs> and so it's being in, in somewhere where there's that temptation to drink a lot and just, you know, have a casual drink with friends at the pub. That culture seems very present here. You know, not partaking in that has meant that I, you know, am consciously focusing on other things. And so it helps kind of maintain a different focus. And so what I've really learned from sober stints of sort of, I try to do at least one three-month or six-month sober stint each year just for the clarity and so on. And maybe it'll go on longer. There's no time limit. But I've really noticed for me it has a domino effect on many things in my days. And so if I am drinking, it seems that then, you know, I go to bed without 
doing the reading that I want to do. I instead probably pick up my phone and scroll mindlessly and then I don't get the sleep I need. The quality of my sleep is also hampered, which means then I don't wake up feeling very nice or I don't wake up when I wanted to, which means I'm often sort of in a rush. I don't fit in the morning exercise that I would have wanted to fit in. And so it's like the drinking topples over all the dominoes. But interestingly, when I take out that piece and I don't drink, then I do go to bed when my body's tired. I am more likely to read before bed, which is a nice way to sort of feel sleepier and rather than sort of staring at the phone. And then I do wake up when my body has rested. And I often find that that oscillates because as I talk about in the book, I don't have a set routine, but you know, I'm more likely to then exercise, which means I have more energy, which means I have more clarity and focus during the day, which means I'm less likely to feel tired and feel like I need to have a drink to relax or unwind. And so it has this positive domino effect on the day. So I think, you know, like all things, we think that we need to sort of overhaul our entire lives, but sometimes we just need to find this one small piece, the equivalent of drinking, whatever that might be for you, and whatever we might need in a particular season. In this season, I don't want to drink, so I'm not, but that could change and, you know, we can have just as we have times in our lives where we feel more social, but times we have more sort of close periods where we're sort of more basking in that glorious solitude, I think things change. But yeah, for me, it's been an interesting thing to observe and experiment with. You mentioned in the book, delightful discipline. And I'm wondering if this is an example of delightful discipline. Yeah, that's a good connection there, Meredith. I think that delightful discipline is very much an antidote to this really punishing form of discipline that we often talk about, you know, with rules and strictness. And if you fail, then there's a punishment. Or if you do well, then there's a reward. Whereas delightful discipline is really an antidote because it's very much about starting with fascination or interest or curiosity or delight. Doing things because we want to do them makes it so much easier. And so, you know, we can also cultivate delight because there's always going to be things we don't want to do, but we can make them smaller, like you mentioned earlier. We can make them fun or we can make them easier. And I think my example of the dominoes is showing that rather than aspiring for a routine, I make it easier by just cutting out one of the dominoes. The core tenets of your book, the idea that productivity can be a bit of a trap, that the different tools that we seek to improve our productivity, those are also kind of can hold us back and be limiting. It calls into question our relationship to work and our careers. And you have an interesting quote in there from Toni Morrison something her father said to her, which is, listen, you don't live there, meaning work. You live here with your people. Go to work, get your money, and come home. What does a healthy relationship to work and career look like? Again, I think we have to circle back to this idea that that's going to look different for everybody. But I think that that quote, Toni Morrison goes on to summarize that and say that you're not the work you do, you're the person you are. And so I think that maybe that's where it can begin is that we can create a separation between what we do and who we are. You know, we really have created an identity often around the work we do. You know, at the beginning of this, I said that I'm a writer, but I'm not a writer. I'm a person who writes. And there's a slight difference to that. And so I think that that was a really helpful piece because it really showed that there's a difference. And maybe, you know, sometimes we measure ourselves by our success in our careers or by 
balance in our bank account, but it's really not reflecting who we are. And so I think a more healthy relationship to work could start with, am I making this too much of an identity? And do I need to step outside that because it's not serving me? Or I feel trapped by it? Or I feel like it doesn't even, it's not the identity that I even wanted, it's what someone else wanted. And that's why I think ambition can be quite interesting because, of course, you know, we need ambition to kind of at times inspire us or to find solutions and big picture thinking for the world's problems. But sometimes we can, you know, have these ambitions or these goals that we get lost in and, you know, we never actually arrive because we're just focused on the next goal once we've achieved something. So, yeah, I think asking questions regularly of ourselves about whether what we're doing matches or whether we're kind of over-identifying with what we do could be a helpful place to start, maybe. I wonder if I could push you a little bit on this notion of you're not a writer, you're someone that writes. Could you just dig into that a little bit more? Like, how would you define those differences? Because listening to you and going back to your introduction as someone who asks questions, that seems to me to be sort of core of what it means to be a writer. I kind of experience you as a writer, and I'm curious why you don't see yourself in that way. Well, it's my job, but it's not who I am. I guess it's a bit existential, isn't it? <laughs> I'm just like, how do we <laughs> approach this? Because we're calling to question, like, what is it to be a person? <laughs> and that's tricky. But I suppose I'm a writer as an occupation, and that's how we describe ourselves. And that can be fine to say if we don't feel completely lost in it. So I suppose it goes back to this idea of whatever it means for healthy and unhealthy relationship to work. If you're feeling incredibly trapped in your work because you've over-identified with it and it's not serving you, then perhaps that's a place to start. Maybe the distinction is that even if I wasn't paid to write, then I would still write. And so how do we define what you do? You know, is it because I write on the side or is it because someone pays me to do it? So I, I suppose that's where it gets all murky. Well, I guess there's certain professions like writer or designer or photographer or musician that at least I think they're kind of a mindset. Like I think like a designer. I move through the world like a designer. I also get paid to be a designer. I also move through the world like a writer. And I experience you as moving through the world as a writer. Now, whether or not you get paid for that, and that's your occupation to me, is sort of a secondary thing. Mm. Maybe that was the distinction I was trying to draw when you said, I write, but I'm not a writer. Because I was thinking of the writer idea is a is a mindset, and again, a way kind of approaching life, or you know, a person pursuing a creative life that manifests itself through writing. But being someone who pursues a creative life leaves you open to lots of different modalities or ways to move through life. You could change your mind and become, I don't know, a busker and play guitar on the streets of London, or do some other creative thing, but. When we're over-identified with a particular occupation, it can be pretty limiting and doesn't give you the latitude to just sort of like let your life unfold in unexpected ways. Mm, yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, maybe it's a, about inviting more possibility because, yeah, what if everything is uncertain? What if things are taken away? I would still exist if I didn't write. And so what is it that I do? Again, yeah, I think you've, you've put it beautifully. Well, and what's interesting with that too is that, you know, people are or have been reevaluating their lives and reevaluating their careers. But I think like it's gotten to a point or it gets to a point where some people are burned out in order for that to happen. 
And I know that you'd mentioned in the book kind of the difference between, you know, you were talking about burnout and talking about crispy and burned. And I'm just wondering if you could dive into that a little bit and tell us what the differences are and kind of how to identify them. Yeah. So this is a beautiful analogy, I suppose, that is from an artist, Honor Eastley. And it's been a helpful frame for her as she's navigated both burnout, but also various fatigue and chronic health. And it's really sort of, I guess, a warning sign to her about whether she's approaching burnout. So she having the two phases was helpful. So crispy is kind of when you are in that flow state and you know, sometimes you can be busy and you can be firing on all cylinders and it feels fantastic. You know, it's got this momentum and that beautiful saying of like, if you want something done, ask a busy person. And so it's really this sense of really being on fire, I suppose. However, when you start to catch a light, you can start to get crispy though. You know, what's the difference between being on fire and you start, you know, when you're starting to kind of turn to the ashes, I suppose. And so that's really when she starts to feel that crispy phase is really what is preceding burnout. It's that moment in time which is kind of hard to spot but quite important when something has turned from momentum and motivation into, oops, I'm going to exhaust myself if I keep up these long hours or if I keep this up because as we've spoken about, things are cyclical and you can't sort of continue to lurch forward. And so it's a warning sign to herself that she's reaching that point because the second phase from being a bit crispy is to being burnt out. And that's really where that movement grinds to a halt and you are suddenly stifled and burned. And so it's really, I guess, a helpful reminder because I think we can forget the signs of burnout. You know, we can almost forget like, oh, last time I was really busy like this, I was so tired for weeks and weeks after. Or, oh, last time I finished a big project, it was a month of recovery. So it's, I guess, teaching us to take better care of ourselves in those busy periods that might happen. And so you could even do something like create a list for those moments where you're feeling a bit crispy as reminders to yourself, like, actually, when I'm like this, I do need to make sure that I have dinner with friends or family to feel that moment of connection, or I do need to make sure that I have some solitude, I guess, self-care things that we do before it's a little too late, perhaps. Yeah, I think that's the most important thing to call out is before it's too late, right? Because I think a lot of people don't identify that until it is too late and then they start reevaluating everything. Whereas if you can get to that stage right before, you can maybe prevent, you know, some of these like life altering changes from happening or this like constant reevaluation. And of course, it can be tricky sometimes because it might not be us perpetuating the busyness. You know, it can be tricky in that sense. So I don't want to say it's all up to us to stop burnout, but maybe those moments where we're busy and we're on a high with it, that's it's particularly useful for those kind of instances. But I like what you called out about creating a list. And as somebody who is obsessed with creating a list, this type of <laughs> list is different, right? It's a list to create as a reminder, not of things necessarily to do. Yes, reminders, exactly. So it's not a self-care regime that you must stick to. It's like it's a list of warning signs for this is what happens when I'm starting to get burnt out and maybe it's that I don't exercise or I don't answer my phone or I ignore text messages could be a sign. Oh, because, yeah, again, it's this burnout amnesia. And so what helpful reminders can we have? Hearing you talk about burnout and trying to read the signs before you get to that bad point reminds me a little bit of like running marathons and long distance training. You know, I sort of joke that track and long distance running is basically injury management. 
And the whole time you're running, and I joke with my friends who say, oh, I can't run because it's too boring. I'm always like, well, it's because you're not running hard enough. You're not really paying attention. And when you're really engaged in running, you're monitoring every joint, every footstep, every breath, literally every breath you take, you're thinking about. And you're trying to moderate your intensity so that you don't go over the edge. It's reminiscent of what you're talking about, like trying to manage and think about your day-to-day life. And are you getting close to going over the edge and, and flipping from productive and engaged to emotionally injured and burned out? Mm, Bob, I love that. I think that you could pitch a book on the Marathon Runner's Guide to Avoiding Burnout. <laughs> <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> I'd read it. It sounds great. <laughs> Madeline, another guest on the show had a really interesting phrase that stuck with me. He's discovered that all research is me-search. It's trying to solve a problem for yourself. And this book about, you know, I didn't get that thing done today, sort of like throwing up your hands and saying like, I can't be everything to everyone, including everything that I want for myself and embracing that wobble. What was the takeaway for you going through this process? Clearly you did a lot of research and you've talked to so many people about their routines. You've seen so many different people and talked to so many different people, ask good questions about how they're trying to find satisfaction in their life. What satisfaction have you found over the course of writing this book? Oh, you're so good at asking beautiful big questions because I think, you know, it's hard because it's obviously all wrapped up in the book are the lessons. I think for a long time I knew intellectually that you have to find your way. This started out because I thought someone else could tell me the answer and then I realized no one can because actually even they will change their mind and contradict themselves and, you know, have their own flaws. And so actually you need to sort of do the hard work yourself and you have to have the courage to experiment and give yourself permission to find your own way. And so I think over time that really was something I started to embody rather than, you know, just know. And I think it takes a really long time. So even having written the book, there are days where I feel like I'm not doing enough and fall down the productivity guilt spiral. It's this the big all-encompassing thing is that we have to find our own way because we all have different patterns and cycles. And even the cycle of learning, you know, is non-linear. Like we learn a lesson and we can't be surprised when we bump up against it again, because that's part of actually learning and practicing something. So I've really learned to kind of embody this ebb and flow and trust myself more. I think that's what it comes back to is that there might be days that I don't do the thing, but I'm starting to trust that that's actually part of doing the thing. (laughs) So yeah, I think to summarize is yeah, to find my own way and to to trust that. It's kind of like the user's manual that you reference in the book. Everyone has their own user's manual and you can't copy somebody else's, right? Like you kind of got to go through this journey by yourself and you can reference other people's user manuals, but it's still not your own. Yes. And that's why we want the hack because that would be easier. Yeah. But then they don't always work. (laughs) Rarely they do (laughs) because it's someone else's. What kind of advice would your 25-year-old self give to you today? I remember I started Extraordinary Teens when I was 25 And I remember distinctly having a bit of a meltdown about it and thinking like, this is pointless. It's never going to lead to anything. And why am I doing this? It's so much time. And it's, you know, it was a labor of love. So it was a lot of 
investment and it was just kind of something I could pick up and put down when I had the time and curiosity for it. And so sometimes I would just, you know, have a panic about it. And I think that's common when we do something, we don't know where it will lead. You know, lots of the work is actually being comfortable with the uncertainty of the work. And so I think 25-year-old me would just say, see it all as a bonus. You're doing this because you want to and you're curious about it and whatever happens is just extra. So I would be so delighted that a book has come out of it. I would be so delighted that I get to speak to people like you about it. And so I'd just say, like, have a bit more fun and see it all as a bonus and enjoy it. So Madeline, where can people learn more about you and the book and your work? They can head to madelinedor.com, M-A-D-E-L-E-I-N-E-D-O-R-E.com, where they can find links to the book and an upcoming newsletter that I'm soon to be sharing. And I'm also on Instagram, extraordinary underscore routines. Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you for your thoughtful readings and questions. That was really probing and beautiful. So we just had the lovely Madeline Dore on, and uh, we were talking all about productivity guilt, the wobble, all sorts of things. What were your impressions, Bob? What'd you think? You know, I loved, so I asked her that question about her having given up alcohol for some period of time, and she started talking about what we might call domino habits. And I just thought that was a really interesting contrast to what I think James Clear calls keystone habits. By keystone habits, it could be like exercise. It's something that if you do do it, it unlocks a lot of other behaviors and goodness. And I like the idea of domino habits. And on her blog, she talks both about alcohol and she did a digital detox as well, which she talks about in kind of a similar way. And so it got me thinking about these domino habits, like what are the things that I could stop doing that might have this positive impact? Drinking's an obvious one, you know, spending less time online and doom scrolling is another one. I just haven't had enough time to think about other ones. But we often talk about habits in terms of additive things. And I just thought it was an interesting idea of, well, what could you stop doing? What could you pull out that would also result in a lot of goodness and improved well-being? Yeah, it's a good way of thinking about it. I'd never thought about it that way. Aaron, what about you? What were your thoughts? I mean, I heard some echoes in what Madeline was sharing, you know, themes we've heard from other guests like Catherine May of the idea of wintering, that there are seasons of life where you aren't super productive. But I think Madeline was trying to just challenge it on a more fundamental level. The idea of our self-worth coming from productivity and the dangers, the risks of doing that, that our identity gets very wrapped up in our work. What I do is who I am, which is problematic because at some point we all step away from our work and, you know, maybe our, our needs change and we want to try something different and that can create an existential crisis. So I think there are people like us, we're pretty into being productive and getting things done. I get satisfaction from that, but it is very fleeting satisfaction. Not getting too attached to that as like, that's what creates our happiness. I really liked what she was saying about happiness being a fleeting state, a state of being versus satisfaction, which is something that we build. And that's really what this show is all about is like, how do we build systematically, very thoughtfully build a satisfying life? There are lots of components to that. And Madeline's book helps point to a lot of those. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that I took away was around burnout and how, yes, we all try to live a satisfying life, but we also suffer the repercussions of burnout if we are going too fast or going too hard at something. And just to kind of slow down and realize that you can do things incrementally and you don't have to do it all at once. That's something that just kind of hit home, the whole crispy versus burnout thing. I think that's a great analogy. And that's something I'm going to use moving forward is how do you identify when you're about to burn out? And then how do you identify when you're just completely done? Yeah. We danced around it a little bit, but this notion that we're all living in this capitalist society for better and for worse, and in many ways it's for better, but it is a certain mindset and it creates certain demands on us. And it does set the expectation that we behave in a linear ever upward and to the right model. And I think both with Catherine May and the concept of wintering and then what, what Madeline was talking about with that, you know, we live in cycles, but there's external pressures that our lives are lived in a linear manner. I thought that was a really important takeaway and kind of, it speaks a little bit to, I think what Brad Stolberg was talking about with uh, the idea of self-compassion that I am at the end of the day, I'm a human being, not an economic actor. And I need to honor my human needs first my economic needs and my economic role comes second. Yeah. And we're also multidimensional. We're not just like our work selves. We're many selves. We can occupy many spaces. And that's so important to call out and be a reminder of, right? Over and over again. I think we have to remind ourselves of that or else we get caught up in it. Well, because capitalism is the water we're swimming in, right? Uh, you have to you have to kind of be reminded that, oh yeah, we're living in this system. And again, for better or for worse, I'm not trying to diss on capitalism. I'm just saying it's a certain system and mindset that we're all living within day in and day out. And so you have to be reminded that that is the thing you're living in and that it probably isn't 100% harmonious with who you are as a human being. Yeah, I liked our conversation where she was trying to puzzle out, I am a writer, I am a person who writes. Like, what's the difference there? It's like, this is the choice that I make right now, but it could be something very different. She's someone who is searching for discovery, living a creative life. I actually, you know, when I was younger, I was really obsessed with being a painter, that I just wanted to be a professional painter and, and make it big in the art world. And then there was a point where I was like, you know, actually, I don't want to do that. I thought I had great certainty and I shifted. And that was okay. And I can live a creative life but not as a painter. I can live a creative life as a designer. I can live a creative life as a pro home cook, as a uh, you know someone who's like tending a garden, or a creative life as a parent. There's a lot of different ways I can express those values in my life. Well, it's not that you can't still be a painter. Like being a professional painter is a completely different endeavor. And I've seen this in my own life when I thought I was going to be a photographer. And then I've seen it with other people in my life who thought they were going to be professional athletes or different types of professional creatives. And over and over again, those people get close to the realities of those professions. And like the reality of being a professional athlete or being a professional painter is very different from the activity of being an athlete or a painter. There's a whole host of things around that that you have to deal with. And I think a lot of times we sort of romanticize what it would be like. And you get close to it and you decide, well, that's actually not, I don't want to do that thing professionally, but I still enjoy doing it. And so I'm going to go do it, you know, of, of my own volition because I enjoy it. And it's super, I think in a lot of ways, it probably ends up being more meaningful in that context. Right. You just don't have to do something to be successful or for monetary value. You can do it just because you enjoy it. Right. 
Meredith, this whole conversation with Madeline, I was thinking of you because you're such a like productivity nut, list maker, to-do list type of person. And the fact that you read this book and you were so excited about it and listeners couldn't see it on camera, but you had all these little tabs and notes that you had put on this book. So clearly this resonated with you. Yeah. But the idea that I didn't do the thing today, that is so antithetical to who you are. So I'm curious, like, why did this book resonate for you so much? I think it gave me permission. It like gave me permission to not kind of like check the lists all of the time or to like be as high functioning as I think I need to be. Right. It kind of made me take a step back and realize like, oh, things will get done or things will happen. Not everything has to be on fire all of the time. And so just some of the examples that she had in the book were just so, I mean, it's like she talks about David Sedaris and how, you know, he talks about having four burners on a stove and all four burners on the stove aren't going to work well at once. Right. And you're going to have to give and you're going to have to take. And I think it's just one of those things where I'm driving people to do their best work every day. I see success in moving people towards goals. It was nice to know that I could have permission to not have to do that and have somebody else tell me that versus putting all the pressure on myself. Do you, when you say you had permission, do you think it was Madeline and the, and the people she talked to giving you permission? Or was it, do you think you've got no place where you can give yourself permission? I definitely think it's a mix of both. It's like if you go see a therapist, right? Like, you know what they're going to tell you, you know what they're going to say, but hearing it from somebody else kind of validates what you're already thinking. And I think that's what she did for me is she just validated a lot of the stuff I had already been thinking. And she did it in such a clever and thoughtful way of giving stories from other people, you know, in different professions and, you know, how they value success and how they don't. And I think it was good to get that validation and hear other people's perspectives. Yeah, it's funny. It's almost more like a coach rather than a therapist, I think. And that, you know, because you kind of know you're supposed to make the play or like you kind of know, you know, by the time you get to a certain point in the sport, you know what you're supposed to do. You may just get distracted or lose focus or maybe your confidence is a little shot and you just need that coach kind of going, no, really, you're going to make it. You've got the ball. You will do it. And it just reminds you of what you need to do. That's a great read. I hope listeners will check out this book. Yeah, it's great fun. Appreciate Madeline being on the show with us. Yeah, definitely. That was such a treat. Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kima Meraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.